Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. In this episode, we talk about family secrets, the kind that nobody wants to tell for fear of shame and embarrassment. Should we keep the family secret hidden from the world, or do we just let it eat away at our soul every day? Or do we do the right thing and tell the truth from the beginning? We're going to explore how family secrets can change the perception of reality to a point that it affects our lives and those around us negatively, and how to change that path. We're going to have a conversation with a woman who kept a deep, dark secret for over 10 years, and what it felt like to finally speak up and live life on her terms. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About the Family Secret. My guest today is Michelle Anhang. She's a certified leadership and life coach who specializes in supporting individuals and families living with mental health challenges, as well as those moving forward after loss. And she's learned from her own experience firsthand. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Well, I can give you a snapshot of where I'm at today. <laughs> and, uh, that would work. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think you had mentioned, um, you know, yes, I lost my husband um, 14 years ago to suicide, and we did hide the truth for many, many years. Um, and I had my my two sons at the time were four and seven. They are now 21 and 18. I'm about to become an empty nester, and I, I'm celebrating that. <laughs> it, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Let me tell I, you. I I know that, but I'm. I'm at the place of, you know, solo parenting for 14 years. And I'm like, off you go. This is my time. <laughs> so this is where I am enjoying, you know, loving my career and and sharing my story and hopefully impacting other people in, in a positive way. That's fantastic. That means there is hope after loss. Yes, there is. As you said earlier, you lost someone to suicide 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about that experience? Yeah. Um, so my husband, well, I, I can, I'm going to back way up. Um, my husband and I knew each other most of our lives. Um, we actually met when we were eight years old. And wow. then, yeah, started dating at 18. And four years later, at the ripe old age of 22, we got married. <laughs> and and then I, it took 10 years for, for us to recognize that he had severe mental illness. It wasn't really showing up at all for you know, the first number of years. And then, you know, gradually, they were little signs that we didn't quite put everything together. But um, about two and a half years before he passed, he got the diagnosis, he had bipolar disorder, and a form of schizophrenia, I believe they call it schizoaffective disorder, which is essentially the hallucinations and the wild mood swings going in both directions, the bipolarity. And sadly, by the time he had the diagnosis, and and they were trying all the different medication cocktails, because they, you know, it's never just one, and that works, it's usually a combination, and there are different side effects. So, you know, he he was feeling quite a bit like a lab rat and was not getting any better, was having some pretty adverse reactions to to certain certain of the the medications and and he lost hope. And that that was it. Yeah, that's unfortunate. So, yeah. Did you see this coming or did you were there any no. signs that you saw or was there something that was completely unexpected? You know, he never once spoke about 
wanting to die, of suicide. It never came up. I feared for his safety, but more that he might hurt himself accidentally or somebody else. That was more my fear just because the medications, you know, he... I, I think it's a blend of the medications and the illness. Um, I, I don't know, you know, the person that I knew disappeared and, and was replaced by somebody else. And, you know, I, I didn't feel I knew him anymore. And I was just afraid of like, okay, what what might happen accidentally? Yeah, I, I um, as I had mentioned to you before we started the interview, I spent a career in law enforcement and I had dealt with people with bipolar disorder as well as schizophrenia from a different level and a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So I, I could see the uh, ramifications from it from the outside and walking into a situation like that, whether it be a familiar situation or not, or just individual situation, they, they all kind of had the same type of a uh, scenario where they were lost and scared and kind of didn't know what direction to go, I think. Yeah. And it's very unfortunate. And medication these days is just, uh, it's just not good. My Without divulging who, because I think it, it just privacy purposes, but you know, we have family members that actually um, have been diagnosed with the depression and with anxiety. And one is on the verge of possibly being diagnosed with a bipolar mm. within my family unit um, uh, as a, in regard to that, that kind of, kind of scares me just a little bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think, you know, on the topic of medication, it serves some purposes and we are also, I think, just very quick to go on medication or put people on medication and not looking at other options. And and often there's the belief that once we're on medication, it's going to fix everything. And not recognizing that there, you know, there are lifestyle changes that need to be made as well. And there are ways to help people become healthier and more empowered through mental health challenges. If I can, please delving in just a little bit of what indications did you guys notice or or see that uh, uh, kind of presented itself to allow him to get help for for what he was going through. Yeah, he he was um, depressed. He was staying, you know, and and I know, like you know, mental health challenges often display in different ways. And I've had my own diagnosis with with depression and anxiety, and I'll share how it showed up for me. With him, it was it was depression. It was it was the melancholy. It was the low energy where he would be in bed for days. Now he also, I, I should mention, he hid a lot of it from me too. It was only after he got the diagnosis of the schizophrenia that he told me he had voices in his head. So I didn't even know the extent of it. I only knew what I was seeing. <laughs> the the manic behavior again was it was kind of only after the diagnosis. I don't recall um, before that it being really apparent. I guess if I looked back, I can say, well, that might have been, but it's it's so hard to tell because I know, you know, that a lot of, you know, I, I know a few people that have bipolar disorder and a couple of them were telling me recently how their manic de- their manic episodes show up as creativity where they just be, they could be extremely creative. And, you know, sometimes it could be somebody like they might seem like they're very excited about something, starting a new business, doing a new venture, something risky that, you know, in a healthy person, it's great. If it's not a healthy person, we don't know where they're going. So it's so hard to tell. 
Um, and, you know, and even with depression, while my husband was having, you know, the sadness and, you know, and the exhaustion, when I experienced it, uh, my emotions were shut off. I didn't have negative thoughts. I did. I just was like complete apathy. I noticed I was sleeping a lot, like I'd get nine hours of sleep and then need to take a nap in the afternoon. And, you know, I'd, I'd be watching a movie that I, you know, I knew should make me cry. And I'm like, I'm not crying. What's going on? <laughs> you know? and so it really shows up. It, it can show up in so many ways. That's interesting. Did, is there a, I mean, I'm delving into something, you know, kind of personal and deep just because I want to help people to understand what kind of, what, sure. what happens and what happens with mental health and then what, what people can recognize because there are individuals out there that may be going through that and they don't quite recognize those signs. So I'll, I hope you're okay with moving yeah, in, in a little absolutely. bit in that direction. So did he have um, any kind of uh, history in his family, for example, of those challenges? So interestingly enough, he was adopted and we didn't have the medical information to know. know. So yeah, so we really had no signs to look out for. You know, now with my kids, you know, obviously I'm, I'm you know, watching everything, particularly what they went through. And, and you know, just, just to go back to what you were saying about, you know, being able for, for the listeners to be able to identify it, I would say even more than looking for specific symptoms, like, yes, there are symptoms and we can go online and look at what all of them are. But if you're feeling like you're off, like I'm not feeling like myself, then go to the doctor. You know, it could be a mental health challenge. It could also be a vitamin deficiency. There are vitamin deficiencies that have the same side symptoms as some of the mental health challenges. But I think that's the key of I don't feel like myself. Get checked out. That's important. I think that's really important. How did that affect you as a, a young mother? I mean, losing your husband. Oh. Wow. In every way possible. <laughs> and, you know, it's, I mean, for one thing, I, I didn't have any coping tools. I had no skills. I had, you know, no, no way of knowing how to deal with this. And, you know, to you know, make matters worse because of the shame and the stigma around uh, suicide, the family decided to say that you lost my husband in an accident. So, I was not able to grieve the suicide, which is very different from grieving an accident. You know, there, there's a lot of additional emotions, um, guilt, fear, um, anger, a lot of things that I wasn't able to feel. So how I dealt with it was just by stuffing it all. Just don't feel. I, I, <laughs> yeah. And I just said, I've got two kids that now statistically have a lot stacked against them. You know, they lost their dad by suicide. They're genetically prone to mental health challenges. They're now being raised by a single mom who's not quite sure what to do in life. And so I just, I said to myself, I've got one chance to do it right for them. And that was really, really what drove me. It was just do, being there for my kids, but I wasn't there for myself. Were you a working mother? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually working two jobs when my husband passed um, because he couldn't work. So and I had always I had always been working. And then it was like, OK, now now I've got to even shift, change things because now I'm, you know, indefinitely providing for the whole family on my own. Yeah, it kind of it changes your life. Completely, oh, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, did you ever blame yourself? Yeah, I did. I went through that, wondering if I did enough. Did I miss anything? You know, could I have prevented it? I had to work through that quite a bit in therapy. Um, and I, I, you know, I think we we 
all, I mean, we being, you know, those of us with family members with mental health challenges, you know, there's a part of us that thinks that maybe if I love them more, I can fix them, I can make them healthy. Maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that. So that's where the blame comes of just like, did I do enough? And yeah, and it was one day my therapist said to me, you know, if somebody wants to die, they're going to die. There's nothing anybody can do to stop them. And, you know, don't think you're God. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's really good advice. I can, right? I can attest to that fact from a personal level myself, as I had told you when we talked prior to this. Yeah. You know, I lost two of my uh, very closest friends that were colleagues of mine that to uh, suicide. And I had spoken to them both like within the week beforehand and had absolutely no clue. But they both were suffering from PTSD. They were first responders, both of them. One was a police officer, one was a firefighter. So they both, from different perspectives, were suffering from PTSD, and they just couldn't let that go. But from that profession, not, not to delve off, but just help our mm-hmm. listeners understand, from that profession, you know, we are taught to, we don't show emotion, we don't, you can't show emotion, you can't show fear, you can't show weakness. Because if you do, then it may be detrimental to to what your job, basically. So you have to show strength all the time. So nobody saw it coming. And it was, you know, it's like, wow, I just talked to those guys a week ago. Why didn't they say something? And even though I had known them both for like over 30 years, it was still kind of one of those things. Why didn't they call me? Why didn't they pick up the phone? Because we had worked together, I thought that that relationship was wasn't close enough that they would have at least made a phone call and said, hey, I need to talk. But they didn't do that. So even for a little while, different from being married to somebody, but, but you know, when you're a police officer with somebody or you work with a fire department, firefighter or something, you work with them on a consistent basis and you, I mean, you're like a family, you know, you count on each other every day. They have your back, you have your back. It, it's a family. You take care of each other. It's the same thing. Um, John was my kid's godparents. So that's family. Yeah. So, you know, it, from that perspective, I, I just want to put out there that, you know, we never know why, and it can happen at any time, yeah. and that we really shouldn't blame ourselves. At least from my perspective, I've just told the same thing, that we shouldn't blame ourselves because sometimes there's nothing you can do. Yeah. And, and, you know, to your point of them not reaching out, you know, I, from what I've experienced, you know, through this and and through working with clients, often, when we're in that kind of pain, we feel like nobody will understand, we feel very isolated, we feel very alone. And we almost forget how loved we are. And, you know, and I think it's it's a, a game our mind plays, you know, our trick of mind plays on us of just like, nobody will care, nobody can do anything. And it tells us these things, which then further isolates us. And, you know, which, which is so sad. And at the same time, you know, for those of us who are feeling that, that, you know, what did I miss? What did I, you know, or, or why didn't they call me? It's like, well, they, they couldn't, they weren't in that space and just being in acceptance. Yeah, that's good advice. There's a stigma and a shame about suicide. Can you help yeah. us understand what that, what those are? Yeah, <laughs> I, th- you know, I mean, I, I think it starts with, with the stigma around mental illness. You know, the, the idea that 
that it's a weakness that, you know, like what you were saying with, with the professions of, of, you know, police officer, firefighter, of, of, you know, being strong. And we wear strength as this badge of armor in our, in our culture of just like, you know, even, I, even after my husband passed and people would see me in the store and they'd be like, look, you're so strong. And I was falling apart. I was nothing strong. But that's what we're saying. And so it just, you know, then for the people who are not feeling strong, we're just like, well, I can't now argue with it and say, no, I'm actually not. And it almost makes us feel worse. And then we feel shame because, well, why aren't I feeling as strong as I'm looking? Or why aren't I as strong as that person who maybe is dealing with it better? And it's really, it's become this this huge you know, it's a cultural problem. It's a it's a big problem. I mean, it. I I see stigma showing up in so many different areas, and it's just this judgment around what the person is experiencing, and particularly with mental health and suicide, we don't know what's happening in that person's mind. We don't know what's happening in their lives. We don't know why they're doing that. But, um, you know, it's it's still there. And then the stigma for, for the survivors of it of, you know, well, did you do everything? And I did have people ask me that, like, are you sure you did everything you could? And it was like, well, I did this, I did this. And I had actually had my husband put in the hospital, they call it a form one here in Canada, I'm not sure what uh, the the term is in, in the States. But just two weeks before he passed, his behavior was erratic, I was afraid that he might accidentally hurt himself. And he talked his way out of it. You know, and that was the thing I said to the doctors, like, you know, it happened over a weekend. And I said, listen, he's been seeing a psychiatrist for two, two and a half years. Can you wait till Monday and get a copy of the records? Because this person is not fine. Like, you know, you got, and they let him go. They said, sorry, ma'am, we can't hold him against his will. And, you know, so, but, you know, it's going back to that, that guilt and the, and the, the shame of, questioning myself again of, well, did I really do everything? And so that's where we don't want to talk about it. It's so much easier to say it was an accident. It was an act of God. It was, you, know, do you think that's the only reason people but, uh, to avoid that. I'm sorry. Do you think that that's the only reason people uh, don't want to talk about it? Because I mean, death and suicide and anything like that, I have found, especially in, in my experience and in my podcast, it's almost a taboo type thing. You just don't talk about it when reality, I think we should. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, and, you know, I, th I think death in general, we just don't like, you know, that that's showing our more vulnerable side of, of humanity and the frailty of the human life. And we like to think that we're so in control of things. You know, we're, we're learning now during the pandemic, how little control we actually have, but it's this illusion. And, and that's where mental health, you know, mental illness and, and suicide really rub up against that of just showing that no, we actually are pretty frail. And it, it sometimes can take one thing like you were mentioning the PTSD, and it, it could be one traumatic incident that can turn an otherwise very healthy person into somebody, you know, somebody else. And, and we often don't want to look at that. How do you think? Well, let me go back and ask this first. To help others understand your journey, mm -hmm. what kind of challenges did you have after it took place? Because you kind of reinvented yourself as a person mm -hmm. in, in society as well as personal. Yeah. Correct? Can you help us understand what maybe yeah. some of those yeah. challenges were? Yeah. So I had to, um, you know, I, I didn't have to, I chose to stuff everything and stuff the truth, which then impacted my own mental health. 
you know, I didn't grieve properly. I couldn't talk about it. And so I ended up going through my own depression and, and just shutting down because I wasn't able to express what I was going through. On the flip side, I was also um, experiencing extreme anxiety because I was always worrying, especially over the years, you know, what if my, like my children didn't know the truth. That was, that was kind of how I justified it in my mind that like, I didn't see this coming and I can't wrap my head around how this could have happened. How do I tell a four-year-old and a seven-year-old that, you know, that this is what happened and I don't want them living with wondering, you know, themselves, like, was it my fault? Did it, cause that's what kids do. They, they turn things on themselves. They say like, what could I have done differently? Or, you know, was I good enough? Was it my fault? So I had extreme anxiety around my kids finding out that what if, what if somebody found out from, you know, a close family member and then tells the wrong person and it gets back to them? What if it all blows up in my face? So I was literally tiptoeing around life, like just just trying to make myself as small as I could, like almost invisible. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I was barely living. There, there's a quote by um, Mary Oliver, and it's, are you breathing just a little and calling it a life? And that, that was exactly what I quote. was doing. I like that quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm just by no means judgmental. I'm just helping to understand because I want to help people mm-hmm. to learn. Sure. Do you think the, yeah. the right decision is to not discuss with your family members or kids about an incident that took place like that? Do you think it, it should be appropriate at the time or maybe wait until later and then kind of talk to them about it? Oh, it's, that's a good question. And one I don't fully have the answer for. I'll tell you, I did speak with a few people who had also experienced suicide loss, and they were very truthful with the children. They had had, you know, gone to, you know, different um, grief support groups or suicide support groups to know how to talk about it, to get the support around it. A huge, huge part of me wishes that we had just been upfront about it. And I would not be honest if I didn't say that, you know, I don't have regrets that my kids didn't grow up wondering about that, that when I did tell them that they were at an age where they could, um, they could process it, they could get the support, they could talk it out, because the therapy that they had when at that age, like we, I tried doing talk therapy, and they were climbing all over the furniture because that's what that's what little children do. They they weren't having a conversation about their feelings. So, but they did do art therapy. They did play therapy. But just seeing what it what it did to me and 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 the whole family of hiding the secret, it was not healthy. So overall, I don't think there's ever a perfect time. You know, my my kids thankfully were very understanding when I told them the truth. And in a conversation I had recently with my son, he said, you know, there were some trust issues that rose up of just like, oh, who am I? Was my life a lie? And so, you know, neither here nor there, but I think, you know, my my bottom line answer is just be truthful. You know, secrets secrets make us sick, as they say. And communication works in all aspects of life. And I think that at two certain levels, I mean, I understand children. I've raised children myself. Even when I was, my story's not you know, too far out, but I literally got uh, injured in the line of duty. I was told I'd be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, and I'm not. And I worked my way out of that. That's the positive part of it. But even in that situation alone, it was very difficult for us to have to tell the kids this because, you know, we had an active life as a father. So not comparing it to your situation, but comparing it to 
what you tell your children, what you don't tell your children. In this particular case, you know, we chose to have to tell them, say, this is what the reality of it is, and this is what's happening, and this is the possibility of this. We chose to talk that way because of different situations. In your situation, and I'm sure anybody else out there that might be experiencing anything close to this, you know, obviously you're going to have to look and see what's the best decision for you and your family to make in regard to it. But I believe in honesty, and I believe in communication because communication, my as I told you earlier, my grandfather on my father's side, I turns out, and I didn't find this out till I'm giving away my age just a little bit. 50 years now, 50 years later, I find out that he committed suicide because he got arrested. And we were told as kids and grandkids that he had been beaten by the cops and he died in jail that way. And he was running numbers for the mob, some big story. I thought, remember from the mob, cool, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Turns out that he was just an alcoholic and he didn't want to be arrested and that's why he killed himself. But they kept that secret for 50 years. It took me to figure that out. And the only reason I figured it out is because I ordered in his death certificate, see, in order for genealogy. Mm. So 50 years later, I'm going, wow. From the time I was 18 years old, I spent uh, that time for decades, really wanting to pursue that. I wanted an answer to that, and I could never get an answer to that. So even though it it was a minor, I mean, just a little fabrication of what took place, it took me 40 years, I'm going, I want an answer. I really want to know what happened. And part of that was, well, was he really running numbers for the mob? I got to be honest. Was he really doing that? Because I want to see who he was running for. And, you know, it was the curiosity. But it, it blew me away when I get the death certificate back and it said, uh, hung himself in jail. So I called my sister up and I said, guess what I found out? And she went, really? You know, and she's older than me. She didn't know either. You know, it was kind of told my brother and he went, wow. So so grandma lied to us. Yep. <laughs> Mom lied to us. Yep. So it was, it was kind of, but it, they were lying right. to protect, you know, and I think people do that. You kind of, mm-hmm. you kind of give a little yeah. cover up to protect because you think it's going to hurt their feelings and you don't want to hurt their feelings. But, you know, 20 or 30 years down the road, they may kind of go, well, you should have told me because that hurt my feelings. Right. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and kids sense things, you know, I mean, my kids um, both told me when I, when I shared the truth about my husband, they, they didn't, they said that they didn't think it was a suicide, but they thought that something was a bit off with the story. And there was so little information about the story. Like they didn't know any details of the accident. Cause I wasn't going to go and start making you know, more, more stories up. But, but I think, you know, and I grew up in a family where it's like, you know, you don't tell the kids, no need to worry the kids about these things. And so I know very little of, you know, the health history of, you know, that in my family and, you know, and, and I think kids, they, we sense things. Like I say, we're, we're, kids are so similar to dogs in the sense of like, they have that sense. They know, they know something's not right. They don't know what, and then they start making up their own stories or they internalize it. So really the kindest thing we could do with the kids is just be honest and open about it because they're knowing something's off. I agree with that. And it impacts them in a different um, way. You basically chose to rebuild your life and you did it with intention. I know you've evolved into a few things that uh, are designed to help people through what they're going through. Is that correct? Could you help me understand that? Yes. Sure. So yeah, uh, over 10 years into this secret, <laughs> which was really, you know, so, so clearly defining my my life and choices I was making. And I, I hit, now I'm going to name, give you an idea of my age. So I had hit my 45th birthday and realized how 
I have lived almost half or half my life in so much pain. And I don't want to live the next half the same way. I had just started the coaching program that I took to become trained, which, you know, I I literally just fell into because a friend of mine was a coach. She was like, you need to take this course. I had no idea what it was about. But in the closing circle, the the instructor, you know, in his parting words of inspiration said, don't just tolerate life. And uh, that hit me so hard because I realized I was tolerating everything in my life, you know, constructing everything around this, this secret. And um, so, yeah, just realized, like, you know, I say that was one of my few rock bottoms. I didn't just have the one rock bottom. It was a bit of a bumpy ride. Uh, But that one, I just said, okay, I I have to make the changes. Like, I see it's me. I see it's choices I'm making. I just said, I I can't live this way anymore. I just got to this point of, I don't care how hard it is in therapy. I had been in therapy on and off um, over the years. At this point, I was taking a break. Um, But then I realized, okay, this this piece, I mean, there there were many things that I I knew I needed to heal from. You know, there was some childhood stuff. We all have our childhood stuff. And then, you know, dealing with with my husband's loss of becoming widowed, you know, so many things along the way, other losses, other traumas. And it was just like, okay, I, I need to work through all of it. So I did, I just did a deep dive. I don't recommend what I did for everyone. Cause I was, I was doing talk therapy. I was doing EMDR, which is a form of, of, um, trauma therapy. I was doing, um, mm-hmm. somatic work at the same time. <laughs> so it was like literally three times a week, but I, I was determined and, um, yeah, finally reached a point where I was ready to tell my kids. And that was, you know, on on the urging of, um, of one of my teachers in this leadership program I was taking. And, um, and yeah, got to the point where I had healed enough of, um, of my past that I could now move forward and share the news with my kids. From that point, realized that the work that I, you know, I want to do in the world is supporting the people that are going through the challenges that I went through um, and helping them hopefully find healing in a, in an, a smoother way, in uh, an easier way, in a more open way. Yeah, that's interesting, especially oh, it is coming from the background that you did to go into a profession that um, actually relives it almost every time you have a client, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, that's what draws the clients to me. It's I'm not just another person to talk to. I'm somebody who's who's experienced it. So so often they're like, I'm sure you know this feeling. <laughs> it's like, yes, I do. Um, and, you know, while I, it's obviously not about me, there are times where, I'll, you know, they'll bring something up and they'll say, like, am I crazy? And I'll say, well, listen, you know, can I share something from my life? And they're like, please do. And there's that bond and it actually builds so much more trust. And, you know, because they know, you know, and and I'm so open about all the ways that I wish I had done things differently. I'm like, yeah, do the complete opposite of what I did. Do not stuff to work through it, you know, but I can be, you know, but I've, I've accepted my mess. I accepted the mess that I was in then. I'm accepting the messes that I have today and that, that it's, it's not perfect. It's bumpy. Life has got its journeys and each journey is unique and each journey has its own path and obstacles Mm -hmm. that they have to overcome perseverance 
is also a key to overcoming those obstacles. I just had to throw that in there. I know we're talking about yes. your profession. I have found that perseverance yes. <laughs> is something that I think is something that people need to, yeah. to have and to utilize. What did you do before you became a coach? So funny enough, um, the last 10 years before I became a coach, I was working in finance, <laughs> complete opposite. And before that in law, but I, my academic background, I have a degree in psychology. But it was funny because at the time I was um, that I, I got my degree, I was getting married and I, I wanted to work and I thought, oh, I, I don't want to be a therapist. And, you know, I kind of came full circle in the in the helping work. But coaching is different in the sense that where therapy looks at where you are today and how you got here, coaching is about where are you today and where do you want to be. And that's the piece that I love. It's about dreaming big. It's about overcoming. It's, you know, the perseverance piece definitely um, <laughs> plays a big piece of it. And, and just recognizing that there's so much freedom on the other side, like when we get to choose what we want our lives to look like. So I feel so honored to be able to do this work of, you know, partnering with people who want to be intentional about their lives. That defining moment from when that um, friend of yours had pointed out this particular class kind of gave you a new direction in life that was uh, positive. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, being being in a room full of coaches, you know, where where there's, you know, these are all empaths, <laughs> you know, wanting to serve, wanting to help, wanting more for people. And I forgot that that existed. I don't even know that I knew that that was possible. And I think being in that room of just the acceptance. Like I remember the first day of the course, the, the, what they did, they, they slapped a sticker on each of us on, on our shoulders and it said fail. And you got, and, and you won by wow. the most check marks of failing. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's it where, you know, coming from a space, like it's certainly in finance, like there's no failing. I, you know, I was uh, a financial controller at a private mortgage company. So it's other people's investments. You're not making a mistake. Uh, yeah, exactly. So there's no room for failure. <laughs> and here it's like, fail away. And it was like, oh my gosh, I have permission to do be. You think, and what a gift that it, was. Do you think that helps with challenges with mental health? Do you think a coaching program like that would help somebody who's having mental health challenges? Yeah, it depends where they're at. Um, the, the clients that I tend to work with have already done a lot of the clinical work. They may have, you know, and sometimes they're in therapy at the same time as working with me. So they do their healing work with the therapist. They're, they're generally seeing a physician as well who might be overseeing medication or they might have a mild you know might be a mild case of depression or anxiety i don't deal with severe cases because that's not within the realm of my training but it's it's the clients who say i i know there's more than just medication i want more for myself what can i do and so it's it's learning the tools it's bringing in the mindfulness and meditation training that i have that were such a big part of my own healing journey and just learning the tools, making that mind-body connection of recognizing, okay, what are the signs in my body or maybe the thoughts that might be coming up when an episode is happening? And how can I have how can I navigate through it and either perhaps you know do the you know, use the tools that might pull us out of the episode or just be in acceptance.
acceptance of, okay, this is where I am and this is hard and I'm going to reach out for help and I'm, and I'm not going to beat myself up for being in this space that, you know, if I'm having, and I know for myself, like with my own depression, when it hits, it's like, there are some days where I'll wake up and I just, I know I'm having an episode and I'm exhausted and it's like, okay, today I'm going to cancel my appointments. I don't need to plow through my work. I don't need to do that. I can be kind. I'm going to cancel my appointments and I'm taking the day off and I'm going to watch Netflix and, and just be okay with that space. And, you know, usually reach out to one or two friends who, you know, I know, and just say, you know what, I'm not having a great day. Can you check on me tomorrow and see how I am? And just, and knowing, but using those tools and being compassionate and knowing what helps me to feel better in those spaces. And, and the same with anxiety of just, I don't need to let myself, you know, run off the track. I can catch myself and I often do. And, you know, it, it could be in the space of frustration or anger and just like, okay, stop, take a deep breath. What's going on here, you know, just asking myself and in that space of kindness, not like, oh, there you go again, because we have those thoughts and we're not very kind in our own minds. And and just saying, okay, take a breath. People who have um, experienced somebody like lost through suicide go through a unique kind of a grieving process, different from others. Other type, I, I should clarify, different than other. There types are of added emotions. Yes, um, I do. I think there's there's a different level of pain, like, you know, just what you were experiencing with with your friends of why didn't they call me, you know, while there's, you know, the sadness around that there's also some anger of, hey, why didn't they call me? Like, I could have helped them. I was here. Why didn't they know? You know, that you know, there's that feeling that doesn't necessarily show up in, in an accidental death, or maybe an illness if, if people are getting treatment, you know, um, there, there is the guilt, there's, yeah, it's different, because I think we we believe that the person is making a choice around this. And so we don't understand why they would make that choice. What I believe now is that that the mind is is playing tricks and it's not a, the choice of a healthy person. I think that's something that we forget. We think that they're thinking the way that we are and that, well, I wouldn't go and do that, but they're not in that space at all. And, 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 and I think that we do, you know, with suicide, we need to reach a place of forgiveness of both ourselves. Do you recommend for people that are going through that process at the moment? Yeah, don't do it alone. That's that's my number one suggestion is is to seek support from that. And you know, it's and it's a process and not feel like you need to rush through it. We often want to rush through the steps of let me just get to that place of forgiveness. But it happens in its own time. And it happens in steps. Like I know I I reached one level of forgiveness um about six months after my husband passed when I had a, a pretty serious bout of depression for a month and I was in bed and staring up at the ceiling. And I, I remember like saying to him, if this is a fraction of what you were experiencing, I understand now why you did what you did. And so that was the first piece of like my heart opening. But but there was a lot of anger. I had a lot like here I am there, you know, we had a we were in a financial mess, you know, from from his manic episodes. Unfortunately, there was there was a lot of spending. I now had to raise the kids on my own. I had to, you know, figure things out. And and it's funny because uh, my best friend just reminded me of something I had said back then of just like, it was literally, I said, I've, you know, he's resting in peace while I'm left here making like cleaning up the mess. 
And so yeah, even just needing to move through that, um, and it, and it's there. <laughs> grief in the process of grief is different for not only in the process itself, but different for everybody. Uh, and, and you can correct me if I if you if you feel that I'm in the wrong direction, but I think that each person owns their own grief process, and it doesn't mean that okay, this is Monday. It happened on Monday. On Saturday, I'm going to be done. Yeah. And, you know, move on and everything's good. I'm going to do this on Tuesday, this on Wednesday, this on Thursday, you know, and get up and have a cup of coffee on Saturday and everything's good. But there's oh, yeah. times, you know, um, like, right. for example, John, John did this in 2010. And every August, it all comes back around. I think it's ironic that we had this conversation in August. It comes back around every August. I stop and think, oh, yeah, well, this is what happened. And everybody's posting stuff on his, you know, for his daughters and stuff like that. And I, and I go back through it and, and like I go through a mini process of grieving all over again, but it gets shorter each time it happens, kind of a situation. So I think, and correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but yeah. people should have permission to be able to do that. I agree completely. I think it's so much about giving ourselves the permission and not and letting go of what other people think, because often their inability, you know, or their their thinking you need to be overt or you need to move past it or whatever it is, is their inability to be with with the grief and that's theirs, you know, yours is your own process. And, and again, it's one of those things of just, we know ourselves and it's like when you feel, you know, that, Oh, maybe I need to, maybe I'm grieving too much or I might need to be moving forward. Maybe I'm spending too much time in bed because it's been whatever it is. Then check with a professional, check in with a professional who can tell you, who can assess, you know, and, and give you some good direction. Cause often we, we go to the people around us, but they don't know any better and they're coming from their own place and their experiences. And, you- and sometimes they're helpful and, and sometimes they're not. And, and there's so much online now where you have access. What defines a professional in this regard? I mean, is a psychiatrist or a therapist or a clinical therapist, et cetera? Yeah. Even your family doctor. Go to, go to your family doctor. They they are trained in, in you know, somewhat in, in these areas. I don't know to what extent, but they can also refer you out if it's something that if they're if they're concerned. But I think start with the fa- with the family doctor. If it feels too overwhelming to now have to look for a therapist or a psychiatrist. You have to ask for help. Yeah. Yeah. And and go for the low-hanging fruit. Whoever is the closest and fastest and easiest. Do you have any suggestions if somebody is living with somebody with mental health that may be on the verge of that for those individuals to help their situation? If there's no diagnosis, again, it's just, it's suggesting then that your family member go and get checked out and get a physical, get blood work done the doctor will recognize the signs they can diagnose because we don't know. And that's really the best that we can do at this point as a family member. We, we, you know, we can't treat them. We can only love them and, and hope, you know, particularly if it's an adult, if it's a child, then yes, you're, you're responsible for taking them. But as an adult, it's knowing that adult is responsible for their life and their health. And we're there to love them and support them, you know, when they ask and, and not try to fix them and not try to make ourselves more comfortable, but, you know, help them seek the treatment and and the people that, that might be able to help. Earlier, you said in Canada, they have like a form one and the majority of the United States, they have a 72 hour cycle is what, you know, and in different states call it a different thing, but it's all primarily the same thing that you can take somebody down and put them into a facility, a hospital or something for 72 hour cycle. Most of the time down here, at least in the states that I am aware of that from personal experience, typically they can get 
released, or they can't talk themselves out of it. They cannot talk themselves out of it. It's something that, that they have to wait until the end of that 72 hours. And at that time, they'll be evaluated to see whether or not they're going to be released. Do you feel that, and this is just a personal opinion as well, but do you feel that somebody doing that, do you think it's uh, cruel? And I'm only asking you this because in my old profession, we had to deal with this kind of a thing. And we were always hearing family members saying, that's cruel. Why are you doing that to my son? That's cruel. Why are you doing that to my daughter? Why are you doing that to? Do you think that's cruel? Do you think it's a benefit? From my own personal experience, it was a benefit. I think I know that what my husband was experiencing was way beyond my control. It was it was terrifying for me. It was you know, hard for me, it was hard for my kids. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't able to, to you know, it was well beyond this, the love and support I could give my husband. And you know, my, my, and I wasn't able to be there for my kids because I was so focused on, on his safety. Um, uh, and, and truthfully, you know, I, I know I never wanted to live my life with regrets and I have no regrets about making that choice. So I think that's really what it comes down to. It's personal values. It's knowing where you're at and, you know, knowing what you're capable of holding. Like it was so beyond, I couldn't not get him into the hospital. It was just like somebody else needs to take him, you know, somebody that's trained because yeah, I, I it was how out are, of my hands. How can somebody get a hold of you if they want your services? Uh, best way to reach me is through my website, which is michelleanhangcoaching.com. I'm also all over social media, pretty much, <laughs> except TikTok. My kids tell me I'm too old for that. <laughs> but um, Facebook, I'm uh, Michelle Anhang Coaching, the same for Instagram. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. So um, I, I do one-on-one coaching with individuals who are looking to empower themselves um you know as i mentioned through through you know mental health challenges whether it's depression anxiety um you know often we use words like motivation or stress management <laughs> um it, you know if we don't want to use mental health terminology uh, so I, I teach a lot of tools around that, uh, partner with people around that, uh, family members as well, um, teaching them how to lovingly detach is what I call it. So essentially, you know, we, we, can't, we can't be there for our loved one if we are feeling depleted, if we're not taking care of ourselves. So it's about just the, learning the tools to fill ourselves up so that we can be there um, and just partnering and, and, you know, helping, giving advice, giving resources. Um, I also teach mindfulness and meditation courses. So those are kind of ongoing. Do you have any words of wisdom? I just want to let everyone know that there is hope there is there is a silver lining there is freedom on the other side of things it it just and and it's baby step you have given some insight to me and i'm sure insight to uh, hopefully all my listeners and we can hopefully have educated them and taught them a positive direction so thank you very much thank you very much it was such a pleasure speaking with you that's the end of this episode i really appreciate you listening you will find all of the links and how to contact Michelle in the show notes and on our website at www.beforeyougopodcast.com. That's www.beforeyougopodcast.com. See you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. 
If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.